0: short confession here, I just had to take a quick jog to the office to grab my notes and my Bible um, because I'm doing this right now. I'm a little winded. Um, Pandemic bod, I mean we have like, you know, getting ready for your summer bod, you've got getting cozy with your winter bod. Pandemic bod feels like just an entirely different thing altogether, right? Uh, How many of you have jumped into exercise, dieting at the beginning of the pandemic. The pandemic just has continued to go on and so we've foregone the diets and the exercising. We've lost weight. We've gained weight. We've done all kinds of things. You are perfect just the way you are, church. <laughs> Amen. So a couple of uh, housekeeping things, I guess you could say, a couple things I want to make you aware of. I uh, First of all, Father Brent, Reverend Janice are still with us. Uh, Their daughter and their son-in-law are, I don't know if I, I think I can say this publicly, they're moving back to Tulsa, which is very exciting. And they've been helping them with their move and it's all gone a little bit more quickly than they anticipated. So they've been down helping them get their stuff packed up, getting ready to move. But again... They're still with us. They miss you all. They send you their love. Uh, Bishop Ed does still live in Tulsa. Somebody asked me this week, does he still live here? I said, yes, he still lives here. He, Bishop Ed's still here. Um, and then I was speaking to another one of our sanctuary parishioners this week, and I just casually said, yeah, you know, so we've got a baby coming next month. He said, what? I said, yeah, we were, got our third one on the way, December 21st, we're evicting that child, um, and she will be here. He said, I had no idea you were even pregnant. So, a lot goes on during a pandemic that sometimes you're aware of and sometimes you're not. So, yeah, we have another baby on the way, if you didn't know that. So, things are really chill right now during the holiday season and only going to get more chill as we move toward the beginning of the year. But speaking of the beginning of the year, uh, today is Christ the King Sunday. Shelby just about started to preach for us today, so I almost didn't need to say much of it at all. But today is Christ the King Sunday. And so, one of the things that I want to talk about this morning is just a little bit about how we orient ourselves to time as Christians. Today is the final Sunday of the church's calendar. So, next week starts a whole new year, right? This is Advent, year B is where we're headed next Sunday. But There are some different approaches that we can take when it comes to time and how we approach time. For a long stretch, there was a very pagan idea of time that existed and still exists for some people. This idea that life is just going in these cycles, in these circles, right? That there's no real goal or trajectory. This isn't headed anywhere. We're just kind of participating in this endless cycle of being born and living and dying. Very pagan idea. And then comes along this Jewish understanding of time. This is a little bit about what we see in Abraham, where he's called out from his people to go and be a new kind of people. This understanding of time understands that time was established in creation and then is moving in a certain direction. And what we're trusting is that God is breaking in along this timeline. And so we see this happening over and over again in the Old Testament where God is breaking in and moving, charging these moments with meaning and with grace. And so what do they do? They build these altars. But there's another approach to time that I think is more faithful to a Christian understanding of time, and that is that we aren't just people who think in cycles. We aren't people who just believe that as we move along this timeline that God is breaking in intermittently. We are actually people who pull the past with us into the present moment as we move into the future. So we trust that this is all heading somewhere but we do it as every moment comes to us. Rowan Williams talks about this idea that God is not another being in the universe. You've heard us talk about this before. He says he's not like another sock under your bed that you just haven't found yet. That's not how God exists, but God actually holds us in being so that every moment that comes to us happens as a gift from God. And so we are people who pull the past into the present moment, as we move into the future, and at the end of time, we believe is what we call the eschaton. This is the end of all things. This is when Jesus will be all in all. And this is part of what we're celebrating today, that Christ is king. Christ the King Sunday is a relatively new holiday for us in terms of the church calendar. It was 1925, I mean, this is like really recent, right, especially in church history. 1925, it's Pius XI, and there's a lot of things happening around 1925. Just think for a moment. We have people like Mussolini rising to power. You have figures like Hitler, who is starting to gain momentum. You have events like the Great Depression. And you have a lot of specific things happening in a place like Rome that would actually cause Pius XI to say, we need a day to remember that Christ is king. When there are all of these other powers, all these other things that are vying for our allegiance, for our loyalty, for control, for power, we remember that the end of it all, Christ is king. So this happens around 1925. It doesn't get established officially on the church's calendar until the 70s. So some of you in this room have actually been alive since this holiday actually was established on the church calendar. So it's a new date for us. But the whole purpose is about celebrating a future reality that's been made known to us today. It hints at this parable that we heard today of the sheep And these goats, this kind of final judgment that when we get to that place, that eschaton where Christ is all in all, the end of all things, this is the scene we're told we're going to find. It's hard being a pastor for a lot of reasons, but for one, when you are doing regular everyday things, hanging out with regular, everyday people, and somebody says to you, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a pastor. It doesn't take long before all of their mannerisms, everything they've just been doing, the language they've been using, things that they've been saying, perspectives they have, immediately all shift and button up, right? Um, This happens to me a lot on the golf course, if I'm out playing with guys and they're having a bad round and they've used some choice language, then all of a sudden they go, so what do you do? And I go, oh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. Go, oh, really? <laughs> and all of a sudden it's, you know, all of these Christian jokes and it's like, you know, the end of the round, holy oh, hey, God bless. It's like you would not have said God bless to me if I was like, I'm an accountant or if I was pulling some like George Costanza, like, oh, I'm an architect or a marine biologist, right? Uh, which is what I'm tempted to do because people don't typically shift their whole mannerisms when you're like, I'm a marine biologist. And so what we see in those interactions, what I see all the time, is that people think so much that this business of Christian living is about morality. It's about doing all of the right things and not doing all of the wrong things. And this is one of the ways that I think this parable of the sheep and the goats is often taught to us, right? That at the end of all things, Jesus is coming back. He's looking at some people who did all of the right things and says, come with me. To those who didn't do all the right things, he says, depart. But I don't think this parable is a story about morality at all. In a lot of ways, as we read this parable, it seems like, this Jesus who has just spent the last 3 years teaching about grace he's spent the last 3 years sitting with who we would consider the goats right he has spent the last 3 years and he all of a sudden he shifts going from sitting with the goats to judging the goats it creates a question for us well what is shifting in Jesus why has he been so much about grace and now he is so much about judgment. It seems like suddenly this is not about faith, but it's about our stack of good deeds. And when we start to think in those terms, when we start to think that all of this is just about me doing enough for me stacking up the right amount of goods, creating the right bill for Jesus at the end of all things, what we're actually saying and committing to is this idea that I can save myself. That salvation isn't about what Jesus Christ has done for us, but it's about what I have done to make sure that I am good enough. Does this make sense? So when we start down this road, that it's not about what God has done for you in Jesus, but what about what you can do for Jesus. If Christianity boils down to doing what Christ just says to do, then Christ is not really a savior at all. For by simply doing what he said to do, we've effectively saved ourselves. And this is really a sort of unfortunate perspective because Jesus promptly goes from this moment into Jerusalem. This is Jesus' final parable before he turns and goes to Jerusalem. And this is where he is bound and determined to save us from our sins by dying for them. So I think we need to take a closer look at this text. Again, we're in Matthew 25. And when we take a look at what's happening here, we have these goats and we have these sheep. Jesus is addressing both parties. And it's interesting to me that they have the exact same response. When did we see you and do this? Both the sheep and the goats are caught up in the surprise the moment again both of them respond when did we see you the sheep in this moment they're surprised because they have this blissful kind of ignorance right that they've just been going about their lives and they weren't thinking at all about doing the good deeds that they did they did their good works not because they were told that's what sheep ought to do but because they were so caught up in the joy of their shepherd. They weren't stacking these good deeds. They were simply being faithful to the kind of people they thought they ought to be. The good works that count were not done to be counted, in other words. The good works that count, they were not premeditated. They were done out of love. They were done organically. They were done such that the sheep weren't even aware that they'd done them at all. Again, when did we see you and do this? James K.A. Smith, who we talk about here often, he has this really wonderful book called You Are What You Love. And in this book, he's arguing that we are not just thinking beings. We're loving beings. And the way that we live our lives, what he calls our, our habits, the things that are habituated in us, they don't shift and they don't change just because of what we think or just because of what we believe. He says that what is habituated in us actually is transformed by the very things that we love. And this is exactly what we see with the sheep, that the sheep had been so integrated into this life of the shepherd that they weren't thinking about, "Am am I believing the right thing? Am I doing enough good work? They were just letting their lives be animated by the Spirit. He has this line in his book. It's from a French author and entrepreneur, and I'm not going to try and say his name. Uh, I can tell his first name is Antoine. Past that. Good luck. I'll give you the quote if you want to later. But he says, I think this is so beautiful. He says, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. I think that's something of what we find in this parable that we're not just talking about morality. We're not just talking about, well, we need to make sure we do all the right things and don't do all the bad things because when Jesus comes, he's going to ask, what did you do? I think this is about cultivating a kind of yearning within us that we become people who's so caught up in the joy of the shepherd that we just go about doing good deeds, again, not because we ought to, but because this is who we are. This is what's been habituated in us, transformed by the love that we experience in Christ. My, uh, Our oldest daughter, Nora, she's seven. And I don't want to talk about the Enneagram too much, and I also don't want to talk about typing our kids too early, but... She does seem to have a lot of this like Enneagram 3 energy, which is like very much about, you know, appearing the right way. Like she wants to be successful. Like she was super excited to find out that like women can be president. Um Because she's like, wait, 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 Like the girls can be bosses? And I was like, oh, the girls can be bosses. Um, She's very excited about these ideas, right? Well, she has caught on. And I'm sorry about this microphone. It's bugging me like crazy. Can I switch to this handheld? Is that going to mess you up? Okay, let's do that. So Nora, she has caught on that in our house, there's a lot going on. We're getting ready for another baby. Uh, It's the holidays. It's a pandemic. Things are just not normal right now, right? And so she's discovered that if she helps, this seems to be like her sweet spot. But at the same time, one of the things that I do with her at night when we're putting her to bed is I'll just think about the things that she did to help us out throughout the day. I'll say, hey, you know what? That moment when you got that water bottle for your brother and filled it up with water and brought it to him, That was so sweet. Thank you so much for doing that. That's such a big help. And what's interesting is that in those moments, oftentimes as I'm recalling these things that were super helpful, that were very selfless of her, where she's just catching on that these are things that need to happen. She's completely unaware of it. I'll be there at bedtime saying, thank you for this thing and thank you for this thing, you're such a big help. But hey, also you're so much more than just the help that you provide to us, right? Like you are Nora and we love you even if you didn't help. She's going, what? And it's something of this moment in the parable. She's going, when did I get Rowan a bottle of water? Well, I saw it. She just sees that this is the way that we participate in this kind of family. That I think is what we ought to do as sheep. That when people are saying, well, hey, thank you for doing that thing. Hey, I saw this in you. Hey, man, you are such a big help when this thing happens. You just go, wait, what? What do you mean? When did I do that? Oh, okay." But this is just how we participate with the body of believers as the body of Christ in the world. Now, when we start talking about the goats, things shift a little bit. Because the goats are surprised, but they're surprised for a completely different set of reasons. It's not that the goats didn't do any good deeds. Again, let's look here at the text. It says, Then those on the king's left will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you. Oftentimes, we put a different emphasis on this text. But the idea is not that they didn't do any good works. The idea is that they thought their good works were going to be enough. And surely, if they would have seen, the, if they would have seen Jesus in those scenarios, they would have ministered to him. Why? again? Because their impulse is, I have to do enough good. I have to stack up my deeds. I have to build up this resume so that when the judge comes, I can say, here's what I did. This is why the goats are surprised. Not because they didn't do any good, but because they thought their good would be enough. They're looking at Jesus thinking, we fed the hungry. We clothed The naked did all those things. When did we not care for you, too? This is the story of the gospel, that the ones who find themselves outside the kingdom are usually the ones who are very certain they belong inside. There's this scene in C.S. Lewis's book called The Great Divorce. And they're at the gate of heaven, and there's this angel standing there. And the angel looks at this do-gooding dead guy, and he says to this person, nothing here can be bought or earned. Everything here, he says to him, is bleeding charity, grace, and it's yours only by the asking. I think for too long we've heard this parable in terms of reward and punishment, of earning and deserving. But that contradicts the clear conclusion that Christ contributes to this parable. When he looks to those on his right, Jesus says, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. That was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's interesting that Jesus looks at those who have done the right things, lived the right way, and he doesn't offer them a wage, doesn't offer them a reward, something that they have deserved. He says, this is your inheritance. Inheritance is an altogether different thing. You can't earn or deserve an inheritance. And so not only is this parable about inheriting instead of earning, Jesus says, as plain as the masks on your faces, that this inheritance has been prepared for these sheep before the foundations of the world. This place that we are designed for, a place that's been prepared for us, was established long before we even existed to do any good at all, which is to say, this is the place that was intended for you all along. This is where you belong. Think about it. This parable, it isn't about our works. It isn't about good or bad. Because before any of our works, before any of the good or the bad that we could have done in the world, God was preparing a space for you. So what about the goats? Let's look at this text. Verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for who? Prepared for the devil and his angels. The place that the goats are sent, it isn't a place that was intended for them at all. It isn't a place that we're designed to be. But we end up there by thinking we can earn something that's only ever given. So, how do we make sure we are part of the sheeps and not part of the the goats. Uh, sheep is not the plural of sheep. Sheep is the plural of sheep. I think we get there by embracing a kind of holy poverty. And here's what I mean by that. The sheep in this story, they are those who have lived to learn, learn to live with a kind of, again, a holy poverty this idea that it's, it's a giving of ourselves, in this phrase that I'll say, from joy to joy. That as we receive from God, we're able to turn around and offer that gift to others. And the thing about this kind of giving is that the more we give, we don't run out, because we've learned to see that all of life is a kind of gift. It's a posture in order to see that all of life, everything that comes to us, everything that we have is a gift. This starts sometimes by just taking a really simple account of the blessings in our lives. Important to do in the middle of a global pandemic, thinking about the good that we have inherited, the food in our bellies, the people we have to share it with, a roof over our heads, beds, places to sleep, warm houses to keep us as we move into the colder months. We can receive it all as gift. And when it's all been received, it can all be given. Rowan Williams talks about this and he says, the Christian life is about gratitude It's about a detachment from possessions grounded in the recognition that God's gifts are restless in the hands of the receiver until they are given again. That somehow the gifts that we receive, in order for them to be received as gifts, it means that they're they're not quite comfortable only being received and held, but they have to be given again. This is what the sheep are doing. They've received a gift, and they're giving a gift. When we join the shepherd in this passionate obsession for other people, it won't be about earning anything, but about joining in this kind of holy poverty where we are constantly giving from the good gifts that we've received. It'll be about joining Christ and the life that he makes possible. It's a breaking open and a pouring out of ourselves for the world. This is part of what it is to have a Eucharistic posture toward the world. The good news for us is that when we read this parable, we tend to think there are sheep and there are goats. But there's a third kind of flock that's present here. And the third group that we find are those that are in need. So in this parable, we also see that Christ has so radically identified with the poor, with the least of these, that he doesn't just say that he is with them. He says that he is them. There's no separating the two. And so today, if you find yourself anxious about being a sheep or being a goat, your refuge is not what you have done for Christ. Your refuge is not about, have I stacked up enough good deeds? But it's about the work that you need from Christ, understanding that none of us get to heaven by deserving it. And so we need this kind of work that Christ has already done for you and in you. Mother Teresa, whenever she was asked why she does the work that she does, she would hold up her hand and look at her five fingers and say, you did it to me. I love that image. That if your grief and your anguish, a sense of lack or unworthiness make you feel excluded make you feel left out. We can rest assured that these are the red-letter proof positive ways that we know Christ, that if he is with anyone, he's with you. You did it to me. In just a moment, we're going to be invited to receive from this table. And when we come we always invite you to come with your hands open, ready to receive. We could call this the posture of the beggar, acknowledging that I don't have anything here in this moment. I'm only coming to receive what might be offered, and offered freely. And in the same way that we come empty handed, ready to receive, Christ is present, in our own poverty, in the midst of our own giving, in the midst of our own lack and our inadequacy, that as we give sanctuary and as we care for the least of these, holding up our hands, remembering you did it to me, we pour ourselves out. And Christ promises to fill us with all joy and all peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. The ticket to this table is the only ticket that you need for the kingdom. So we come ready to receive, trusting that we only have whatever has been given to us and that our call is not to hold on and not to white-knuckle and to clutch, but our call as we receive is to give away the good gifts that we received. And we trust that at the end of all things, we will be found as sheep, knowing that we don't deserve what we've been invited into. Christ is King. Amen.